Welcome to Buffeting, the podcast where my wife Cass Ew. and I share our conversations on investing with you as we try to keep compounding capital so I don't have to go back to being a carpenter. And I don't have to go back working with real estate agents. <laughs> we hope you find it informative and entertaining. But we are not your financial advisors and nothing we say should take as investment advice. As always, do your own research, which is more fun. And now without further ado, on to the episode. Hearing the experiences of people who are older than you who have been through these periods, mm. and when Buffett and Munger say, "Yeah, this is the craziest time we've seen," like listen to what they're saying. It's like your brain was in an isolation tank. Yeah. For like the first twenty-five years of our life. Yeah. Like it was only fed specific nutrients mm. and and grown in a specific way. Like it wasn't allowed to figure things out for itself. Yeah. Yeah. We've been throwing around a few different ideas as to what we're going to talk about for our next episode. But I think the thing that we wanted to talk about was how we're handling what looks like from everything that we've read, from everything that we've read about history and the current moment that we're in, what looks like a proper bubble. It kind of overshadows everything you try and do, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's like, we'd love to just sit here and look at companies and do valuations, but you run into like the same problem every time. It's like, wow, this is crazy overpriced. Next. Wow. So, <laughs> oh, hey, Bubby, this is also crazy overpriced. Next, you know, so at some point, like the fact that you want to look at things from a bottom, bottoms up point of view, it, it is influenced by the top down point of view. It is. It is. So let's just talk about it. Like the big elephant in the room is the big bubble in the market, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think and it's, that- it's pretty obvious to say that we are in a bubble. I think most people realize that yeah but it's kind of feels irrelevant to try and like let that overshadow your decisions too much because the whole thing with a bubble is you don't know how long it can last like this kind of bubble can go on for years yeah really so you don't want to like just not do anything and wait and and when it bursts then you have activity because you're trying to time the market there and it's just impossible no one is able to do that and because the market is just human nature correlated together in one big, you know, screaming mass, mm-hmm. you're never going to be able to pick that in terms of when it's going to turn the opposite way because you're basically trying to predict human psychology. Yeah. Um, so you can't do that. So, I mean, I guess we want to talk today about how we're handling it, you know, how we're approaching it and how we're not sure if we're thinking about it the right way. I mean, it would be really nice if we could just approach it and pretend it's not even real, pretend it's not happening pretend there's not craziness everywhere we look and just pick stocks, but it doesn't feel rational to us, does it? It doesn't, no. no. Well, yeah, I'd love to just like wait around for when like the tide pulls out and you mm-hmm. can clearly see, you know, who's naked and who's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then take your pick from there. Like I'm sure that time will come. We just have yes. no idea when. So in the meantime, what are we doing? You know, how are we investing? And and what is a bubble? And that's the thing. That That's another question is that there's been so many bubbles through history you know, from the tulips to the South Sea bubble, dot mm. com bubble, you know, the housing bubble of the GFC. And obviously now we're in some kind of like, would you call it a crypto bubble? Would you call it like a meme stock bubble? It honestly just feels like another dot com bubble, like a tech based bubble where everyone's like, well, this time is different from every other time yeah. because we've got AI and we've got, you know, all these incredible technologies that are just going to advance the human race, like beyond yeah. what we ever think is possible. Blockchain's going to, you know, 
make everything decentralized and all know. i would say to that is have you ever tried to like bluetooth your phone to your car like in a yeah. consistent <laughs> way like i think technology's got a long way to go before it produces productivity based yeah. on today's valuations of yeah. businesses we're just not there yet like maybe one day but it, it's so true like to put your brain in the proper mindset of where you should be right now the easiest way to like get a bearing on reality is to look at history isn't it so like reading richer wiser happier mm-hmm. is that what it's called yeah well uh, will and green's new book yeah yeah brilliant i mean it just it tells you like the background stories of all these great investors that we all admire yeah but it also like they are the great investors that we know of today mm-hmm. and they've done so well because they have survived yep right they haven't taken part in these bubbles yeah and they've played it safe and they've been contrarians yeah it's like that saying you know there are old investors and there are bold investors but there are no old and bold investors because exactly. the reality is if you just get on every um train every bubble that comes along you know you might catch a few but you're flying a bit too close to the sun and you're probably going to get you know get burned and probably going to blow up yeah so you just that that extra level of caution i listening to that book together you know it's fascinating how many of these people just seem so conservative and these are people who made like 15 20 percent a year which is amazing returns and they seem like they're not going to make any returns because they're so conservative. Well, 15, 20% returns um, over decades and decades and decades. Yeah. The point is they have survived. Yes. They haven't taken part in the bubbles. You know, they've just kept out of it. Yeah. And they've remained with their strategies. And at times that's meant that they've traded, um, their returns have done worse than the market. You know, they've been ridiculed by people. If they're running funds, people have taken their funds from them and said, hey, you know, you're not yeah. part of this tech bubble. Look at what everyone else is doing. I'm going to go with them. And these great investors have just stuck to... Their principles. What they know. Yeah. And appreciated what's happened in, in history. Yeah. And this is just history repeating. And that's how they've protected their capital. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's almost that like if, you, if you're an investor and let's say you're investing over a 20-year period... And you don't have a period where you underperform during a, you know, a, a situation of overvaluation, then you're not going to be one of these great investors because they've all done that. Every single one of those stories in that book talked about, like you know, Moesh Prabhai being down seventy percent in the GFC. Yeah. You know, like this is this is he's he's one of the greatest investors. You know, if you understand the way he thinks and the way he approaches the world, he's definitely one of the best. Down seventy percent, and these are the kind of things that most people, you know, would think, oh, I'm failing, I'm failing. But during a bubble, stepping up, you know, stepping away from it and being able to handle some underperformance seems like it's a crucial part of being one of the greats. Yeah. And it's a point in time where you can't really compare yourself to the market because mm-hmm. the market is being really irrational. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, yes, we're in a bubble, but, you know, the biggest question in my mind that most people are probably asking is like, what is a bubble? You know, how do you define it? Is it just a run up in price? You know, like mm. that's probably a thing that most people think, well, if you look at the share price of say Google, you know, over, you know, if you not looking, not taking into account any other bits of information, but just looking at that share price, it kind of looks the same as Bitcoin or it kind of looks the same as like a hot stock, you know, yeah. something really popular. Yeah. But in the reality, like if you look at the underlying performance of the business, well, that share price appreciation is justified and that's fine. That's not a bubble. What a bubble is in my mind 
is when your fundamentals are stable. You know, like I always make the analogy of like a, a house is a good analogy. You know, if you've got a house and your rent's going up at two or three percent a year, but your house prices are going up at 10, 15 percent a year, it's clearly irrational and that clearly cannot continue because your underlying fundamentals is not improving. You know, but with a lot of the things these days that are going up in value, there is no underlying fundamentals that you can hold to to say this is what it should be priced not at. The not the and moment. And not according to us, it's not reasonable the fundamentals that people are anchoring their prices to, even yeah. based on future cash flows. Like, you know, it all hinges off the fact that what the Shiller P is at thirty seven, right? Mm-hmm. People have are basing today's prices on exponential growth in the future. Yep. Now, it might get there in 10 years. They might, these valuations might turn out to be yeah. based in reality on our future. Yeah. But that would mean that everybody in the market um, is happy to not take any returns mm-hmm. or, or any increases in stock price yep. until that point in time in the future when the values are representative yeah. of the earnings. Exactly. So, you know, do you think all the retail investors who've just come on board the past year, you think they're going to be happy with their money in stocks that do nothing for Mm -hmm. the next 10 years until their value is realized and then they get their returns? Yeah, exactly. Look at the the Nikola SPAC. So that was an electric truck company that got, I think, a couple of billion dollars, like, you know, in a SPAC. It was merged with this company and, you know, it got listed. They're saying we're not going to have any revenue for three or four years. Are you telling me that all the individual investors in that company are going to be waiting for like three or four years contently? No, they're in it because they want to make a quick gain on the SPAC. And that is classic bubble behavior, like not focusing on the fundamentals, but focusing on what's, you know, the price appreciation basically. Yeah. And it's really important that you pay a reasonable price based on the current situation. I was just looking up on um, something I retweeted about a week or two ago that this guy, Andrew Kuhn said, Microsoft had a market cap of $393 billion and a PE of 53 in 2001. So, you know, very expensive stock and something that's worked out. But if you purchase the stock in 2021 at that high price, you know, PE of 53, Tesla's not even... If Tesla was a PE of 53, everyone would be saying it's a buy. Yeah. And this is Microsoft, like yeah. one of the great companies. Now, if you purchased that company in 2001 and held, you didn't break even until 2016. 15 years. And that was in a period of earnings were growing. Everything was actually going really well in the business. But because you've paid such a high price, you know, for it, you didn't do very well for like a massive long period. Mm. So I guess we'll see what happens, but it's not looking good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you, I mean, I try and think of what people's mentalities are like Mm. at the moment in this current marketplace. Yeah. You know, would they be happy to hold on for 15 years until they see yeah. a movement in, in the stock that they hold? I don't think so. Like we look at the liquidity that's been pumped into the market, you know, yeah, an extra $6 trillion. Like we don't know if that's in the stock market or it's gone into housing or, yeah. you know, cars and all these other areas. But I kind of, I, I like to look at our economy, like the global economy yeah, as like a grocery store it's basically a big supermarket it's a big supermarket and at the moment you know you've got different shoppers in the supermarket right you've got your big funds who have to come in with like a hundred dollar notes they can't buy anything for less than a hundred right so they're capped at that and they've also they're refined like a certain aisle of 
big brands yep. of what they can buy. Yep. You know, so they're like, they're stuck in a specific section. Yes. Okay. So they might think intelligently. They might know how to value stocks. They might be able to find opportunities, but they actually are, they're too big to, to really, um, approach, you know. approach the whole thing with a, you know, a very logical investing framework. It's like when you've got that much money, what can you do? Yeah, they're kind of like hamstrung in a way. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then you've got like this frenzied mob of like retail investors who are new to the scene. Yeah. Who are kind of coming in and buying whatever's shiny, whatever's got flashing lights against it. You know, yeah. they're, they're pushing up prices of these items that everyone else is going for and they're just buying it because everyone else is buying it. And yeah. then it gets out of out of stock and the price is yeah, yeah. ridiculous. And, and then you've got like your intelligent investors who just walk through the whole shop with their calculators and they're calculating, you know, is this a fair value? Is this a fair price? Mm-hmm. Do I want this item? What's the longevity of this item? Yeah, yeah. And you just kind of take your pick on what's available at the time. Yeah. And that's where I think we have this amazing opportunity. As, as small investors? Yeah. As small investors who are doing it intelligently. Yeah. And I don't think you're going to find your area of opportunity in the places that... The big guys are looking. The big guys are looking and also the speculators are looking. Yep. Yeah. You've you yeah. got to go to the area of the supermarket where nobody is. You know, you got to look on the top shelf. you got to look on the bottom shelf. you got to, you know, don't look at eye level. Like, that's where all the average stuff is. Mm. you got to go high, got to go low. And, you know, just because something's on special doesn't necessarily mean it's a good deal. Yeah. You know, it's a perfect analogy. But it involves, you know, not to mention the fact that you've got people with index funds who just have to buy <laughs> the certain products no matter what happens. You know, there's a ton yeah. of money coming in constantly into index funds still. I think, didn't we hear that it was like it used to be 10 years ago, like 3% of the money was indexed and now it's like 40. Yes. That is insane. You're telling me 40% of the market is just in there no matter what. They're not evaluating businesses and they're not looking at management. They're not making any of those rational decisions. You know, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. You've also got like the added complexity of bringing credit into the supermarket. You know, these people can come in, they can pay with credits, not even their money. (laughs) Um, And that's a classic sign of a bubble. You know, when you've got huge amounts of margin lending that was something else i retweeted out you know there was like eight of these charts and they were all looking terrible like they were all at record highs but the biggest one that you know triggered me was the margin debt so the increase in margin debt is two standard deviations above the average so it's a huge difference compared to usual and it's now crossed a point where margin debt is exactly as high as 2007 it's exactly as high as the year 2000 yeah. So the last two bubbles, each time there's been uh, euphoria that's also correlated with you know, loads of your average people coming in the stock market. It's also correlated with people taking on debt to buy stocks. Surprise, surprise, the prices are higher because if you can borrow money to invest, mm. prices go up. So it's a classic signal. The hard part, of course, is what do you do about it? Yeah, what do you do about it? Like you, you don't really want to try to be thinking about when this bubble's going to burst and what you do at that point because that yeah. could take years. And especially because, you know, P ratios are at their all-time high yep. ap- apart from the housing market crash um, where it 
was I think forty four, and we're at thirty seven or something. Right. The the is that the uh, the Schiller P? Yeah. And I think for anyone who's wondering what the Schiller P, the um the P a P ratio, if you're um a brand new investor, it's just the, for example, so if a company has earnings of one million dollars, um and you can buy the whole business for ten million dollars, then the company has a P of ten. If you can, the company has earnings of one million dollars and you're buying the whole business for twenty million dollars, the company has a P of twenty. So it's basically a relationship between the earnings and the price you're paying. Mm. And what the Schiller P is, is it takes the earnings, it looks at the margins, the profit margins of a company and actually normalizes those margins. So the normalization of margins is something that's always happened through history because of capitalism. So capitalism acts on margins to stop them from going too high or too low, but the Schiller P corrects for the normalization of margins, but then it looks at the whole market and takes the whole P basically of the whole market. Mm. Um, and we're at record highs on that measure as well. Record highs, yeah. So yeah, if, you, if it's not as simple as just saying, okay, well, the, oh no, it was the dot-com crash dot actually, com crash, yep. where it was its highest of all time at 44. Right. So we haven't reached that yet. We haven't reached that yet. And it also at that point in time, I think interest rates were like 6.5% or something. So they right. were quite high. Okay. So Fair it's enough. not as easy as just like looking at that chart and be like, all right, we're going to hit that. We're going to hit 44 and then it's going to, bust yeah. because with interest rates at basically nothing yeah that could probably be pushed even further Definitely. before people are forced to think rationally and just looking at bubbles i mean the, the p ratio of the market in japan and the japanese bubble got to 60 before it busted yeah so if we were to get to that point you know that'd be 80 percent or 70 percent higher than where we are now but then obviously the japanese stock market went nowhere for 20 years after that yeah <laughs> so you know like that it's not a people's mentality like do you yeah. think that was a, a mentality disruption for like the whole country i think so yeah yeah like what, in terms of running back to safety and definitely yeah yeah definitely it, it, it stuffs up you know people's approach to things and if you get a situation where you know the index hasn't made any returns for two or three years well what direction do you reckon those index fund flows are going to go are you going to get more people putting money into index funds or taking them out mm. and that's where you can see like an unwinding and a bit of a reversal where people go back into you know buying actively managed funds or something yeah again i guess my brain works in analogies yeah. <laughs> i just gotta try to put it into like when i look at the market as a whole i see it also in terms of like um storage sheds yeah so you've got all these different categories of where you can store your wealth and you kind of want to be ahead of the herd in a way. So you want your money stored in a shed that isn't overly populated at the moment. Yeah. Like it's quite empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can see that in future, people are going to start storing their wealth there. And when that gets, you know, condensed, mm. then you pull your money out and go to the next storage shed. Like yeah. in a way, I, f I feel like we kind of have that in terms of our cannabis investment yeah you know we i feel like that's a great opportunity for for future growth yeah. because there's just not enough people comfortable enough to invest in it at the moment there's not the big guys who are allowed to invest in it at the moment so it's kind of like this little niche that you can take your pick from yeah. quite good businesses who still have good fundamentals yeah and if you understand like the legal landscape then you can have security knowing that it's not going to be a total loss of capital. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially combined with, you know, good management teams and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. 
But yet looking at like storage sheds, it's kind of a, a macro approach as like a background mm. to how you would choose to invest. Yeah. Although it doesn't ultimately determine um, on a micro level which businesses we invest in. It's just kind of, if you can see a segment is being underappreciated, then look in that segment, you know, look at that yeah. barrel of fish to shoot. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, go, go looking in the areas where people aren't looking. That's, you know, that's your only advantage as a small investor is to at least start applying your limited, you know, brain power, limited resources, limited capital in areas where you can actually, you know, try and get ahead of some of the big movements. Still still with some security though. And still based on purely the fundamentals and, you know, a bottoms up approach. But mm. yeah, just being aware of what everyone else is doing at the moment, um, which is index investing, quant investing. And your average retail investor coming in with margin debt to buy Tesla, cryptocurrencies, and hot stocks All that hot have stocks. That been going yeah. up. And that's these are huge danger signs. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say if you're invested in crypto or Bitcoin or Tesla or, or anything yep. like that. That's not to say that that is not going to work out for you're you doing in the wrong 20 thing. years' time. Oh, it, sure. It very well could. Yeah, yeah. But at this point in time, when you look at the great investors in history... And the fact that they have remained outside of those mm-hmm. bubbles, outside of those speculations, and yeah. they've just focused on maintaining capital, protecting yeah. capital, yeah. investing really intelligently where other people aren't, and being happy with like long-term returns as opposed to short-term returns. Yeah, I think that's kind of the gravity we're holding to at the moment to keep our perspective. Definitely. Definitely. So... Um, yeah, I mean, the way that we're trying to approach it is that we're still trying to buy anything that we find that looks a great deal, mm. you know, a cannabis investment, um, you know, EOS, one of our favorite companies, yeah. you know, we've done a lot of work on, you know, Howard Hughes is an incredible business with a lot of assets, you know, it's not going to grow at 30% a year, but you know, there's some security there in hard assets, mm-hmm. you know, we own Facebook for example, which is still going to be a beneficiary of the huge trend towards digital advertising, you know, versus TV advertising and all the other terrible kinds of advertising that just don't work. You know, Facebook's going to be a huge advantage of that. So we're kind of positioning ourselves to benefit from a number of things that look unlikely to be different in the future, you know, and no no matter what happens, basically. Well, it's kind of feels impossible to have a total loss of capital yeah. in any of those positions because yeah. when you really think about what's the worst case here, is there a chance you could, the stock could fall to nothing? Yeah. The company could go bankrupt. You could lose all your capital. Like, yeah. Is there a chance of that happening with any of your holdings? And if there is, well, factor that into the percentage that you're allocating yep. of your portfolio. For sure, for sure. And honestly, I don't think I would invest in anything where there was a total loss of capital. Potential. Possible. And that's another common thing from the book that we found is that all these investors, they all focus on downside. They all focus on ways it can go wrong. Mm. And that's a common thing that humans don't like to think about. No. Humans don't like thinking about the ways that things can go wrong. And that's you know where your advantage is at this moment in time. But yes, yeah, certainly if there's so many signals that we're in a frothy time, we're in a bubble... And all you can do is just hold to those principles that those investors in the book 
have um, have held to so successfully over the years. Yeah. So. Be boring. Be boring is, is the way to go. Be the nerd. Be the value guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we're really value investors, are we? Like we're um, growth at reasonable price investors. Is that different from value? Not really. I mean, like the, it just depends how you define value. But I, I think that, yeah, value investing is just trying to buy any asset for less than it's worth based on the value of its future cash flows. So, you know, however you want to call it. Mm. But yeah, we've definitely rotated away from things in the past that were just like, okay, it's a dollar of value. We're buying at 50 cents and a dollar of values. It might be a dollar and five in five years time. You know, and trying to rotate away from that and more towards things where, okay, you're buying a dollar of value for 70 cents, but the dollar is going to be $5 in 10 years time. So that's, that's where your security exactly. comes from. It's sure you want your margin of safety still, but you want that original, you know, asset to be growing in value. And that's where you get the real security from because every year it's getting more and more undervalued, mm. you know, as you're owning it for longer and longer. So yeah, basically, you know, you think that, in a bubble, the best thing to do is to hold cash. We haven't really done that because we keep finding specific opportunities that would be fine no matter what. Yeah, they're still out there. Yeah. 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 And, and that was the same in the dot-com bubble. Like we were listening to Jeremy Grantham earlier this week and he was talking about how in the dot-com bubble, I think the S&P was yielding like 1.6% as a dividend, which is probably similar to what it is now. You know, if you just buy the index, you get a dividend of one percent Six percent or one point seven percent of your purchase price. Mm. Um, but he said in that time period, you could have taken your money out of the S and P, and you could have bought a real estate investment trust that was yielding nine percent. Mm. Like what a deal! Yeah, you know, and but and, yeah. what did he say about that? No one wanted that because it was all about tech stocks at the time. All it's that like growth. why would you go into a REIT? Yeah, when you're going to miss out on these amazing companies that are going to like a hundred bag in a year or something, you know, yeah, people yeah, yeah. had these yeah. ridiculous speculative dialogues that they were just spurting narratives. Yeah. And it's no different today. No, it's no. just with a different asset class. Yeah. It's that Mark Twain thing. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And it's like, it's very, it seems very similar. I mean, I wish I was like 30 years older so I could, you know, go back and I wish we were like, had that experience, but mm. you gain the experience by hearing the experiences of people who are older than you, who have been through these periods. Mm. And when Buffett and Munger say, yeah, this is the craziest time we've seen, like, listen to what they're saying. Yeah. You know, these are people who have been through these things seven or eight times and to, you know, turn around as some people I've seen say, oh, you know, they don't understand what they're talking about. Like, give me a break. Come on, man. Yeah. It's, it's so different when you experience it to when you just read about it. Like, we yeah. only get to read about it. But... You have to have some humility and respect the fact that yeah. this has played out in history. We might feel like we're living in a special time yeah, with like completely different businesses than anyone's ever seen in the past, but yeah. we're not really. No, no. There's still the forces of capitalism still act on everything. Any company that earns a lot of money is going to attract competition. And that's just like the way things are and the way things always will be. Mm. So those, those forces still at play, you know, to turn around and say, well, this time is different and, you know, the growth, you know, growth's going to go on forever. Trees are going to grow to the sky. Crypto's going to solve all our problems. Like, yeah. you know, when my Bluetooth speakers, the two Bluetooth speakers that are supposed to sync to my phone every time, <laughs> when they sync 
every time at the exact same time, I'm going to start to entertain some possibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that technology is going to save us. Yeah. You know, like... <laughs> it's coming to this AI, but not until then. Not until then. So, yeah, the, the, what, what, we, what we've done is we've got seven positions. We're about 80% invested. You know, it's, it's a small put option position, a small gold investment that, you know, is acting as a bit of a hedge. But apart from that, we're sort of looking for incredible opportunities at cheap multiples that will do well no matter what. Mm. And we think for us, that's the best way to handle it is not to ignore the situation completely, but to be aware and not be involved in any of these industries and any of these businesses that are you know, participating in the froth. Because if your investor base is people that are not educated and not in there for the long term, you know, when things go bad, they're all going to be out the door into something else. So that's something to be aware of, I think. But, yeah, um, you want to have some rationality surrounding where your money is. Yeah, it's a fascinating time, that's for sure. So yeah, I guess we're trying to stick to our principles always. Keep a acknowledgement there of the time in history that we're in. Yep. And the times in history where this is played out over and over and over again. Yeah. So reading about these awesome investors stories yep. what they did at the time is kind of priceless priceless but yeah. also i guess the reason we're not holding a heap of cash as well is because there are a few opportunities around still yeah yeah, yeah. um but we're also again the macro backdrop we're trying to keep in mind very low interest rates with inflation that's already kind of coming coming through, through. yeah yeah um, in consumer spending and um, these are all the, the inflation risk is a, is a huge one but you know one of, from what we can tell one of the best things you can do is to own growing businesses you know growing great businesses and that's yeah. a great way to protect against it which is you know kind of the solution to a lot of problems you know just having these great businesses holding them it's um, better to be in businesses than in cash at this point in time definitely but it really matters the price that you buy in at and so you know, if you're buying in at multiples that are just not going to make any returns for you, even yeah. if it is a good business, yeah, then it's still not a good option. <laughs> exactly. Because we're all just trying to make good returns, aren't we? No matter sure. the quality of the businesses, it's you got to have both. Definitely. Yeah, I guess we're in this environment as well. We're looking for businesses that are um, inflation protected in some way, so they have pricing power. Yep. You know, if if they're costs go up they can change their prices to suit pricing power and also cost control there's another thing mm -hmm. if you can if you're not in control of your price so your price is going up but you can be in control of your costs kind of the same thing in terms of like vertical integration within a yeah. company yeah so you control your your inputs and your outputs. your inputs and your outputs yeah perfect yeah and also a company with low debt or fixed debt for a long time yeah so they're not impacted too heavily by interest rate Interest, interest that's going up. That, I think that's one of my biggest concerns for Howard Hughes because they do have, you know, some amount of debt on their buildings, mm. but, you know, it's not a huge part of the business. And all, and, and all their rents are, you know, indexed to inflation. So they own some of the best real estate in America from what we can tell in terms of being in the highest, higher socioeconomic classes and also in the higher income brackets as well. Their communities are basically like high-end communities. Mm. Um, and within those high-end communities, they own great real estate. You know, street level real estate, office real estate, and all of those contracts. I say, like, you know, your uh, your rent's going to rise at what, what do they usually have index they, they, to CPI or something. Yeah, index to CPI basically. So yeah. as long as the underlying business that's paying that rent can sustain it, Howard Hughes is protected. Mm. Um, despite the fact that they could they could potentially have you know interest rates on their properties going up, but they can also hopefully raise the 
um, income from the rent to offset that. So they should be able to manage it no matter what, although it's not perfect. Um, not to mention the fact, well, the, and the positive in that business would be that they have huge amounts of land. And land has historically been one of the best protections against inflation, you know, to have a huge, you know, fixed amount of something. Yeah, it's a truly well. finite resource. Truly, truly. finite resource. It's, yeah. it's like not even, you know, materials that you mine from underground. Like no. there's really, you've got no absolute fix. Yeah. On, on those types of commodities, but yep. with land you do. Definitely. I also feel like air wellness is like inflation proof. It's like the best option because yeah. they've got a loan at like 12% interest. <laughs> it's like they might be the only <laughs> um, industry, the cannabis industry, yeah. where they're, they're actually getting access to lower rates exactly. than what they're currently getting. Yeah. yeah. So like an average business right now, like, you know, your Facebook or your Howard Hughes, they're borrowing at like two and a half percent, you know, three percent, two percent in that range, depending on the risk, you know. So if, if interest rates went up to five percent, well, Air's already paying 12. You know, you, you could have interest rates for most companies going up, but as cannabis becomes more normalized and those banks get, you know, some more laws get passed and those banks get more comfortable lending to the cannabis industry, they could be paying six percent and that'd be amazing because they, they, they can buy businesses at four times earnings, which is a 25 percent return on capital. So this is all, you know, this is all like part of why we feel reasonably good about air wellness. Plus, they're vertically integrated as well. So it's like they have full control over their costs. Definitely. But yeah, that's what we're doing amidst a bubble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody out there would love to hear what you think about that. You know, whether you think that concentrating, not holding too much cash, you know, whether you think, you know, (laughs) if anyone's got a good hedge out there (laughs) that's going to pay off 15 or 20x, you know, for a cheap price, I'd love to hear about that, but we can't find anything like that at the moment. So keep looking. Till the bubble bursts. Till the bubble pops. Either way, I'm going to keep tweeting. Anytime I find something, I just tweet the word bubble. <laughs> bubble. And I just like try and find an emoji that has the bubble, you know, some bubble relation to it. So <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that <laughs> and see what happens. Do you reckon that like a lot of value investors have just started podcasts at this point in time? Because like, there's literally, we're twiddling our thumbs trying yeah, yeah, to find yeah, stuff know. to do. It's I like, know. what can we do? Okay, let's just talk about investing. Um, let's start a podcast until the bubble bursts. And then I bet you any money, the amount of like yeah. financial yeah, podcasts yeah. is going to halve because yeah, we're all yeah. busy like analyzing stocks and allocating capital. <laughs> <laughs> Heads up to anyone listening. Don't get too attached to this podcast because if we get 25% pullback, you know, these podcasts are going to go from once a week to once every three months because <laughs> we're going to be doing... <laughs> Doing too much work. Hopefully. But. but yeah. Read Richer, Wiser, Happier as well. Awesome book. Awesome book. Fantastic book. Weaves together the stories of many different investors. It's not even it doesn't even go one investor per chapter. It goes kind of like it starts with one investor, kind of pulls out those lessons, brings in some lessons from other investors who've been successful. You know, all different approaches. Some are like more diversified, some are less diversified. Mm. You know, incredible stories. I knew Templeton was a weirdo, though. Yeah, strange guy. Yeah, very strange. There's that thing where I used to hear those stories about someone who's like a, you know, a multi-billionaire and who never spends any money. It's like, oh, you know, what, what got a great thrifty guy. And now I think like, geez, man, just enjoy yourself a bit. Like, don't... <laughs> yeah. You know, but but he was a very religious guy. Like, and that's something that to hear him talk about that is very unusual because... Yeah, that has kind of intrigued me a little bit because yeah. a lot of these investors that we've listened to their stories, they turn out to be like religious minded or yeah. come from a religious 
background that they still kind of adhere to in a way. And that strikes me as odd. Mm. And why does, why does it strike you as odd? Because, like, I mean, we come obviously from a religious mentality, a religious background. I guess maybe we're distorted in our view of religion because our background, it was like such a fundamentalist, Christian, strict kind of... Black and white. Cult-like religion, yes. right? Where like all of everything we learned about and everything we did, all the decisions we made was so controlled and you weren't actually able to learn for yourself. Yeah. And so I think I've said before, like it's like your brain was in an isolation tank yeah. for like the first 25 years of our life. Yeah. Like it was only fed specific nutrients mm. and, and grown in a specific way. Like it wasn't allowed to take on knowledge mm. and figure things out for itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why investing is so like... Um, been so fascinating. Fascinating because, yeah, it's all about being able to ask questions and investigate and come to nuggets of truth. And I feel like when you have anything that's a top-down system, like mm. most religions are, mm. then it's going to stop you from asking certain questions. Yeah. And that doesn't fit with investing. No. no investing because, is yeah. kind of like a science. You know, it should yeah. be in science. You can ask any question you want. I think the only advantage that, you know, being religious might give you as an investor is it does uh, prepares a lot of negativity in a lot of fundamentalist religions. There's a lot of focus on like, you know, what's bad and what can go wrong. And I think that can be useful in investing. Like if you're, you know, you don't want, you want to be optimistic, but you don't want to be crazily optimistic. You want to still have that kind of mindset of, okay, you know, what can go wrong here? You know, can, you know, is the world going to end? You know, like mm. if you think, if you've been raised in any kind of Christian religion, that's you know pretty hardcore, then you're probably pretty familiar with, you know, the possibility of like the world ending and, you know, there being like a Armageddon style situation and some of that, some of those, you know, mindset structures could probably be useful for looking at stocks. You You're know, probably and used to the negative. feeling that like um, a big group of people who have a different, who think differently to you could be wrong and yeah. while you're right. Yeah. Like it, it makes you feel comfortable being the contrarian. Definitely, definitely. Like I think we've talked about this, hey, like about how, you know, for the first 25 years of our life, we thought that everybody else was wrong. Yeah. And we were right. Yeah. You know, everybody else, you know, in the religion that we were raised in which was jehovah's witnesses you know you believe that you have the one true religion mm -hmm. and you believe that everybody else apart from you is going to be you know destroyed and killed in some kind of armageddon style scenario yeah you know and to, to be raised that way and to be told like you know you're right everyone else is wrong you know you get pretty good at you know handling being the contrarian now i think that's something that a lot of like investors in the book seem to be from like some kind of fundamentalist religious background which gives you that you're you're okay with that mindset you're okay with that idea that you know you're right everyone's wrong and then you come to investing and that's actually useful if you get the facts behind you that's what you gotta get behind yeah, you yeah true <laughs> yeah you know, don't just believe that you're right you know and everyone else is wrong you know and, mm. and if you're if you're if your whole assets are in ethereum or something don't go kathy wood style oh boy kathy wood <laughs> but yeah probably we have pulled a few things that are useful from that background, but ultimately, I think it's a, a big negative on your thinking process. Oh, for sure. If you have anything that like stops you on a thought train where you can't go any further because your religious belief tells yeah. you this is the truth. Yeah. No, it says that, you know, if, if you keep asking questions and if you find out some, find out some answers that disagree with 
the answers that you've been given from the Bible or from the organization that you're a part of, you know, if you ask some questions, you find answers that disagree, well, your answers are wrong. <laughs> it's not the, the religion that's wrong, it's your answers. Mm. If the two things don't add up, you got to pick one. And that's not a good mindset to bring to science or investing because at the end of the day, you want to have the beliefs about a company or about, you know, a scientific treatment that's actually true. But then, you know, but then pretend you're in a religion. So you can hold on to the the, uh, the investment for 10 years while everyone thinks you're crazy. Yeah. But then I get some people like Aaron Edelheit. Is that yeah. His name? Yeah. yeah. Where he has an approach. I think his religious mentality is for like his happiness and yeah. his... Pragmatic. Yeah. He, yeah. you know, he practices the Sabbath for his mental health, yeah. you know, and sure. having a healthy approach. So investing doesn't take up your whole world. You yeah. know, there is more to life. Definitely. I, I understand how it can be helpful for that mm. while not stopping you intellectually yes. in any aspect of where you want to go Definitely. with your learning and your questioning. Definitely. And if someone is part of a, a religion where there, there really is open questioning and you really can find out things that don't disagree, you know, that disagree with your beliefs. You know, I think that that can be compatible, mm. you know, with operating well in the world, but yeah, it's a hard thing to reconcile. Like John Templeton seemed like a very religious, very dogmatic guy. Although they did, yeah. they did mention in the book that someone once, he once was talking to a lady and said that, oh, he thought that the flood or Noah's Ark was a, a lesson or an allegory. Mm-hmm. And then she immediately said to him, "Oh well, you're not a Christian then." Mm. You know, so he he well, he was even even though he comes across as like very dogmatic, I think he probably still was able to applies logic to everything. Be flexible, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is. If you got this far, thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to become my 22nd or my 43rd follower on Twitter, links are in the show notes below. Mitch, anything else? Nothing to add.